You are listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. 2019 marks the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution and the takeover of the island by communist revolutionary leader Fidel Castro. In April 1959, Castro traveled to Washington and met with then-Vice President Nixon. To discuss this and the American government's Cuba policy is Erwin Gelman. Dr. Gelman is a historian and Nixon biographer. He's author of The Contender, Richard Nixon, The Congress Years, 1946 to 1952, and The President and the Apprentice, Eisenhower Nixon, 1952 to 1961. Dr. Gelman, welcome back. Thank you for having me. To start off, uh, Dr. Gelman, I, I understand your expertise is Western hemispheric affairs in addition to uh, the life uh, and political career of Richard Nixon. Could you tell us a little about uh, this audience about your study in this area? Uh, yes, uh, my actual specialty was U.S. Latin, Latin American relations in the 20th century with a specific emphasis on Cuba and uh, uh, the rise and rule of Fidel Castro. So the topic today is Cuba. Could you give us a backgrounder on U.S. relations towards Cuba in the 20th century? Uh, it starts off a big event, uh, started starting off with the Spanish-American War. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the United States uh, fought the Spanish-American War, allegedly for the sinking of the battleship Maine in uh, Havana uh, Harbor. And uh, it was a very jingoistic, militaristic position that the United States was taking as it was proceeding to create its own empire. And part of the, the empire that was sort of created but not created was the occupation of Cuba. And we uh, basically uh, put Cuba under our control. But to stop the actual annexation of Cuba, uh, the United States uh, uh, Congress uh, passed what was called the Platt Amendment, which made uh, Cuba pretty much a protectorate up until uh, 1934, when we abrogated the Platt Amendment. But the idea uh, of U.S. control of Cuba in the 20th century from the Spanish-American War uh, up until the fall of uh, Florencia Batista at the end of 1958 uh, is very clear. The United States had a very strong political, economic, social uh, however you want to uh, talk about it, relationship with Cuba because it was so symbiotic. The United States supplied uh, Cuba with finished goods, and the Cubans relied on the monoculture of, of sugar. And in addition to that, Cuba was one of the most prosperous uh, countries in Central and the Caribbean and in South America uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Could you take us a little bit through the politics of the Platt, out, Platt, the Platt Amendment? Uh, why didn't the United States want to annex uh, Cuba outright? Why, why this political arrangement? Well, again, that goes back to the 19th century, even before the, the, the Civil War. The idea of many Southerners wanted to annex Cuba to make it an, an additional occupancy of slavery. Uh, the North wanted to prevent any uh, annexation of Cuba or uh, basically through a buy from Spain, uh, the annexation of Cuba, because they were concerned that this would perpetuate slavery also. 
the nature of how that progressed to the Spanish-American War and, and the Platt Amendment were basically following that lead that you did not want to annex Cuba because it was not uh, the, 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 the kind of relationship that the Northerners wanted, and it was the kind of thing that they thought that the, the Southerners still had a pension to annex it because they were one of them, for want of a better word. Why was the, why was the Platt Amendment ultimately abrogated? In, in 1933, uh, the Cuban dictator, Geraldo Machado, was falling for power. And he was overthrown by what was euphemistically called the Revolt of the Sergeants. And leading that revolt was Florencia Batista, who became basically the power behind the throne and the president of Cuba from 1933-34 all the way up until he fled the country at the beginning of 1959. But Machado was thrown out of office and created... Uh, an enormous amount of of, uh, political upheaval, uh, where ultimately uh, uh, Batista becomes uh, the chief cadillo, the chief uh, uh, power in Cuba for the next, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, 1934 to 1959. And this period marked what was called by the United States the good neighbor policy uh, through the through the uh, Great Depression and into the Second World War, could you give us a snapshot of what U.S.-Cuba relations looked at looked like during this period of time? Uh, the nature of U.S.-Cuba relations from '33 uh, to the end of World War II, uh, 45, were very close. Uh, the Cubans uh, uh, needed the symbiotic uh, relationship with the United States economically. You know, sugar. Uh, huge sales of sugar to the United States, the United States providing manufacturing and other agricultural products. And uh, during World War II became uh, a very firm supporter of the United States entrance into the war and uh, siding with the United States through World War II. And at the end of the war, how did, um, how did U.S.-Cuba relations take shape at the, at the dawn of the Cold War with the Soviet Union? It continued on. Uh, the nature of the Cuban government uh, was allegedly uh, very anti-communist, and it was, again, still controlled uh, by Batista. Uh, Batista uh, left the country after his term of the presidency was gone, came back in 1952 uh, to run again when he found that he wasn't going to win or thought he wasn't going to win staged a coup, uh, became, uh, again, president of Cuba, and uh, uh, the United States very quickly uh, uh, recognized him, and it led to a series of uh, political opponents that wanted to overthrow them, uh, among which was Fidel Castro. Was there a feeling at all that uh, Cuba, was there any intelligence on the part of the U.S. that Cuba might go communist? Uh, before uh, Batista's fall, no. Uh, and during the immediate rise of Castro, uh, some did, some didn't. 
the hope was that uh, uh, Castro would would side with the United States and uh, also the United States uh, uh, minimize the chances of uh, the Soviets and uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, gaining a foothold in the Western Hemisphere. There were some... There are some people that say that uh, Fidel Castro wasn't a uh, die-in-the-wool communist, um, that he had harbored other ideologies throughout his political career, and that that it was mainly the United States' uh, position towards him that drove him into the Soviets' arms. Would you say that is true, or would you believe, or do you believe that um, he, um, you know, he was a originally a or developed his ideology early on as a communist? I think that Fidel Castro, uh, at at the uh, beginning, was pretty much a political opportunist, uh, but followed a very much of an anti-American, anti-Yankee uh, position because of uh, what he considered, and many Cubans in his position considered, uh, favoritism towards uh, dictators like Machado and Batista. The, the nature of him becoming a dyed-in-the-wool uh, communist before uh, uh, the uh, uh, revolution of, of uh, 1959, I think, has been uh, worked to death and is overgeneralized. I don't think that, that Castro had any real uh, deep uh, philosophical, political philosophical background. How did he take power ultimately in Havana in um, around New Year's Eve of 1959 or 1958 going into 1959? Basically, uh, for whatever reason, Batista felt that he was losing and he would be overthrown uh, sooner rather than later and decided to get out of the country rather than, than to be somehow caught and uh, executed by the rebels. And Fidel takes power uh, in April of that year. How is he able to consolidate power? Well, first of all, he took power. He actually took power uh, when he marched into Havana. Uh, there were a whole series of, of uh, possibilities, but very quickly, uh, Castro is, is, is taking power. Uh, by April of 1959, uh, he's pretty much in control. Uh, he's a, a charismatic leader uh, who has uh, uh, a, a, a wide following. And even at, at that particular time, uh, he's not looked upon as, uh, quote unquote, a, a, a real dictator. What was the Eisenhower administration's reaction to it, particularly the president, uh, to the takeover, to Fidel's takeover? Eisenhower was very circumspect. He uh, initially uh, he wanted to get more data. He wanted to find out what was going uh, on internally in Cuba, but but his general position was that the Cuban people had the right to overthrow the dictator because he was regularly uh, apprised of Batista and how unpopular Batista was in Cuba and the nature of corruption in the Cuban government uh, and other problems that the Cubans were having. Uh, he didn't 
really take a hard line either for or against Castro waiting to, to see how uh, the revolution played out. How did, uh, how did, um, um, Nixon react early on to, um, vice president Nixon react on react to, uh, the takeover. Pretty much the same way he followed the administration. Uh, he was hearing far more, uh, from people that, that viewed Castro, uh, as a, 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 a lefty and possibly a communist, but he too was following the president's lead uh, of not acting precipitously. Tell us a little bit about um, Castro's visit to the United States. Why did he decide to make a trip and um, why did Eisenhower not choose to meet with him and Vice President Nixon meet with him? The idea behind Castro coming to the United States, I think, was to seek some kind of approval and to uh, uh, give some kind of indication that he was interested uh, in, in maintaining relations. I think in addition to that, that Castro viewed his invitation uh, by the editors uh, to speak there to give him an additional uh, forum for him to present his position on uh, uh, the nature of what was going on in Cuba. The the problem that he faced was was that the American press, not only some, was reacting positively to he to him, but some of the press was also reacting neg- negatively to his assassination of opposition leaders, especially what were labeled Batistianos, those people that supported Batista. Uh, Castro didn't didn't understand how the American media functioned. What did he tell Nixon in his meetings? What did he hope to get? What, what hope? What did he hope to get from Nixon? Well, after he he gave his speech, uh, and even before that, since this was not a state visit, Eisenhower saw no need to meet with Castro and allowed other people in the administration, uh, the Secretary of State and Nixon. And Nixon had a long meeting with Castro. It was one-on-one, Castro spoke enough English that he could communicate with Nixon. What the the real meeting was supposed to design to do, uh, probably very little, as Nixon said at the end of the meeting that he had with Castro, uh, did I do any good? And the response was, we don't think so. And Nixon slapped his knees and said, that's what I thought too. But he basically was trying to form some kind of an opinion of Castro, where he thought that Castro was naive, but very charismatic. And that that Castro was looking at Nixon to see uh, where uh, Nixon was uh, trying to present the U.S. view. Was there any policy that was developed out of the meeting? Out of the meeting, uh, did um, you know from Nixon's uh, impressions of Castro? Did did the Eisenhower administration set any uh, any sort of policy position? I don't think that, that that Nixon was able at that early point in time uh, to make any kind of a definitive movement. I think what happened by that time was Nixon became more wary. Of, of what Castro's position was and looked at him more and more 
leading to the far left. How did the um, Eisenhower administration's position on uh, Fidel uh, and Cuba evolve um, over over this you know uh, year and a half period uh, before the administration was over and the uh, Kennedy administration um, came into the White House? The, the, the real simple thing was is Castro as Castro got nearer and nearer to the Soviets and be, be brought more and more. Uh, communists into his government and brought in uh, Soviet emissaries to Cuba, the United States looked upon this as uh, unacceptable. When Castro started to expropriate American property, they looked upon this as unacceptable. So as Castro acted more and more against what Eisenhower thought were American interests, uh, the United States started to do uh, what the, the, the most uh, stringent thing they could do, and that was uh, to cut uh, uh, the, the Cuban sugar co- uh, quota, which was the major funding for Cuba, and to cut uh, its aid to Cuba. And uh, the nature of that was a gradual process whereas Cuba made certain actions, uh, the United States made certain responses. Was there a gauge in terms of um, whether whether the Cuban position, in, our Cuban position in terms of policy, do, do we see this in terms of hurting our strategic interests in the Western Hemisphere, or was it more about um, our economic interests, or, or, or is it a com- some combination of both? It was a combination of both, but the Monroe Doctrine, which said that Europe should not uh, intrude upon the Western Hemisphere, the United States took the Monroe Doctrine for granted and looked upon their own hegemony in the Western Hemisphere as, as not assailable. When the Cubans invited the Russians in, this was something that was an anathema to the United States and something uh, that they looked upon as a a threat. Because remember, this is the height of the Cold War, where the United States is is, is trying its damnedest uh, to prevent uh, any kind of subversion in uh, Latin America, as well as you know subversion in the United States. This this is the 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 pinnacle of of uh, any communist feeling could you tell us what exactly the soviets were doing in cuba in terms of were there any particular security arrangements between the cuban and the soviet governments not initially but uh, castro and his government was trying to uh, give uh, more and more uh, leeway uh, to the Soviets and bringing in military uh, 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 management early on, but not so much as it would be uh, uh, a, a, an apparent threat to the United States. Uh, I don't think that the Soviets were aware initially of how far this was going to proceed and how uh, uh, much of a client state, Cuba would become to the Soviets as 
Cuba became a client state to the United States before. What became the tip of the iceberg for the Eisenhower administration, particularly the president? Basically, he broke relations with Cuba after a whole series of, of things, the uh, uh, removal of uh, uh, the U.S. ambassador, the uh, removing uh, the, the personnel uh, in uh, the Havana embassy. Uh, we did the same thing in Washington, removing uh, the Cubans from uh, Washington, D.C. And it, it, it just became a, a crescendo of uh, movements from the 1959 uh, 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 revolution through 1960 and moving into 1961. I don't think that, that Eisenhower was really uh, that much interested in breaking relations with Cuba in early 61 because a new government, a new U.S. government and Kennedy were coming into the White House. And he, he I don't think, wanted to make decisions of that sort that the Kennedy government would have to live with. How did the Cuba issue figure during the 1960 campaign between Vice President Nixon and Senator Kennedy? That That is, again, a story within several stories. First of all, uh, Kennedy started out by uh, announcing his admiration for Castro and gradually changed his position uh, towards Cuba and Castro because he saw the nature of how much anti-Cuban feeling was building up in the press and the uh, 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 population, especially in Florida. The, the nature of Nixon was looking from inside the administration to the gradual movement of one, the announced diplomacy, and two, the CIA involvement, because Eisenhower looked upon any and all possibilities and quickly in 1960 started giving the CIA money uh, to uh, uh, have uh, training of exiles to do hit and run a AIDS, uh, to have propaganda sent uh, uh, through radio uh, towards the Cubans, etc. So Nixon had an inside view of what the administration was doing, and Kennedy was looking at this from outside. The real issue of Cuba came to a head during the great debates when uh, Kennedy decided to come out and basically call for uh, the overthrow of the the Kennedy government, and Nixon looked upon this as a a uh, betrayal of confidence that Alan Dulles, the director of Central Intelligence, had told Kennedy about the training of exile forces. Nixon, in turn, had no choice, he thought, but to say this kind of, of advocacy of some form of intervention 
was a bad idea and that the United States should not do that. The problem was that Nixon felt that Kennedy got the better end of the deal, that his idea of being aggressive was far better than Nixon's thing of counseling, uh, conciliation, and uh, non-intervention. What Nixon didn't know, and Kennedy continued to point out, was that Alan Dulles never told Kennedy about the exiles. What Kennedy didn't say was that he was parsing this and not telling the truth in uh, the complete sense of the word. What happened was the governor of Alabama, John Patterson, a Kennedy ally, was the head of the Alabama National Air National Guard. The Air National Guard was funneling supplies and exiles to Central America where the CIA was training exiles. So before the debate on Cuba, Patterson had gone to see Kennedy and told him about the CIA's exile forces. So rather than allow Nixon maybe to claim that he was more of a cold warrior than Kennedy was, Kennedy came out with this position and Nixon never knew what really happened, that Kennedy knew what was what was happening in CIA training, but didn't know it wasn't the director of central intelligence. It was the governor of Alabama. When Kennedy becomes president, uh, how does the uh, Cuban or how does the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion uh, of, of, of these exiles ultimately manifest uh, itself? Uh, Kennedy uh, took complete uh, admission that he was responsible. And the fact was, he alone was responsible. Eisenhower had planned to use these exiles in some ways, which was very amorphous. Eisenhower never had an invasion plan and never had any kind of carefully designed scheme to overthrow Castro. What happened was the CIA came to Kennedy and said, here is this invasion force. If we uh, 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 land them in Cuba, the Cubans will immediately move to overthrow Castro, and we will have... Uh, a new government. What Kennedy didn't realize was that the CIA had no clue what it was talking about. They did not bring uh, the U.S. military into this. It was a total uh, uh, CIA operation. And of course, uh, the Bay of Pigs ended in what author one author called the perfect failure. And it was incredibly embarrassing to Kennedy. The only thing that 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 Kennedy really got out of this is, as he said, uh, the worse I do, the better my poll numbers are. Did Nixon have a particular reaction to the incident? Nixon uh, met with Kennedy, uh, uh, I think the day after the invasion, and promised his support. But privately, 
because of the way that Kennedy handled it, both he and Eisenhower uh, believed that, that Kennedy uh, didn't have a clue what he was doing. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened a year later uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis? Is there a cause and effect between the Bay of Pigs and what would happen uh, the following year uh, in regard to... No, nobody, yeah, nobody's really gotten a, a cause and effect, but it appears that there's no doubt there was a cause and effect. The, the idea of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the CIA uh, running this operation was gone. It was off the table. Kennedy brought in a group of advisors to go through the various and sundry things. The Russians also felt because of the maybe, maybe, I, I don't have this uh, as a fact, but speculating, maybe believe because of the Bay of Pigs that the United States would, would uh, not do anything if they brought missiles uh, into Cuba. So what you ended up having a year later was a different Kennedy who was not going to act precipitously, but was not going to allow uh, the kind of embarrassment that happened uh, at the Bay of Pigs and maintain U.S. power and uh, do it by what was called the Cuban quarantine. The problem was that we didn't know, the United States didn't know, Kennedy didn't know, and I don't know if Khrushchev knew or not, that they were going to play a game of chicken and possibly have a thermonuclear war over Cuba. Finally, uh, the Russians decided to pull out the, the missiles, much to uh, Castro's chagrin, and uh, the closest we came, I think, to a nuclear war uh, ended. In 1970, the Soviets uh, begin construction of a sub submarine base in Cienfuegos Bay on the southern coast uh, of Cuba. This is during the Nixon uh, presidency. So Nixon had, in a sense, um, his own uh, uh, crisis with Cuba and the Soviet Union during that period of time. How do you think he learned? What do you think he learned from the uh, Nixon, from his years under Eisenhower, and from Kennedy's experience? Uh, on how to deal with how to deal with this issue, and how ultimately did he deal with this issue? Well, I think he dealt with the issue very well because he had seen what had happened. He had spent while he was vice president uh, several missions in in uh, uh, Latin America. He had gone to Mexico. Uh, he had gone to Central America. He had gone to the Caribbean. He had gone to South America, and the nature of where he was in 1970-71 as president gave him a, a far better feeling of what was going on with the Soviets and the building of the base. And the, 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 the outcome of how the Soviets uh, backed down, or if you want to say went to a different level, uh, was again uh, uh, 
the Soviets making a miscalculation of what American interests were in the Western Hemisphere and what was acceptable under the Monroe Doctrine as revised because of Cuba and what went further. Our guest today is historian and Nixon biographer Irv Gelman. Our topic was Richard Nixon, Fidel Castro, and American policy towards Cuba in the Cold War era. Dr. Gelman, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroides and your Belinda.